Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Our speaker tonight, Senator Bob Graham, served in the Florida State Legislature, went on to a two-term governorship uh, in Florida, and then represented Florida as the United States Senator uh, for 18 years, for a total of 38 consecutive years of service uh, to his state and country. A quite exceptional record. Um, since he officially left office, uh, I like to think of him as the go-to guy. It's pretty clear that whenever there's a really tough problem and people are saying, who should we put on the commission to deal with this problem, immediately Bob Graham's name comes to the top of the list. And so he served on a variety of different really important commissions, but most recently on the BP oil spill commission to try to to deal with that problem and what should we be doing in the future with respect to drilling in the Gulf and more generally in drilling in waters. Uh, and then secondly, he was on the uh, Obama's commission uh, that dealt with uh, financial inquiry uh, after the financial crisis. Uh, so that means he's been dealing recently with a lot of issues having to do with oil and money. And that gives us the title of his address uh, tonight, which is Oil and Money. Uh, he's also recently co-authored a book, America, the Owner's Manual, Making Government Work for You. And it's a how-to guide for citizens on how to get things done. Uh, but tonight, as I said, he's going to talk about oil and money. So my welcome to Senator Bob Graham. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Dean, thank you very much for the generous uh, introduction and for the opportunity uh, to be here this evening. I uh, am especially uh, appreciative to be giving this lecture in the name of Michael Nacht, with whom I had the opportunity to spend an hour uh, on uh, Friday getting scared uh, about what is about to happen. And let me say, if you uh, have some aversion to fear, you might want to leave and I will not be offended because this ain't going to be a very uh, uh, happy presentation that I am going to, uh, to make. Uh, I um, feel in a way this is a payback. Uh, I was elected to the Florida legislature in 1966 and by good fortune and some uh, friendships uh, became the chairman uh, of the House Committee on Appropriations for Higher Education. Uh, that led me to spend the next four years uh, trying to understand higher education. And in the course of that, uh, I visited California on a couple of occasions uh, and uh, at least established a relationship with Clark Kerr. Uh, I asked uh, Dr. Kerr at one point, uh, it took Harvard the better part of three centuries uh, to be thought of as competitive with Cambridge and Oxford. Uh, it took uh, the University of California uh, just a generation to move to the front ranks of state universities uh, and competitive with the uh, Harvards of the East. How did that happen? What was the, what was the chemistry uh, that allowed such a rapid uh, enhancement? Uh, Dr. Curl Kerr's answer was that for a generation, the people of California identified their future and the future of their children with the University of California, particularly uh, this campus. Um, that was, was the fact that I can recall it now over 40 years ago is illustrative of uh, how significant uh, those remarks were. And I, 
I envy California uh, for uh, its ability to do that. Uh, I have tried to instill some of that same uh, recognition of the linkage uh, for the people of Florida, and I'm afraid both states now are struggling uh, during this difficult economic time to maintain the progress that we have made uh, in higher education. Uh, the dean has already said that although I am uh, actually out of work and employed and looking for something to do, uh, that I have uh, had a few opportunities recently uh, to, uh, to go back to school on some very uh, important and interesting issues. Uh, I'm going to talk primarily about the two most recent of my assignments, uh, which will be the oil spill and the financial crisis, uh, and I will hold to the end uh, some discussion of the other, which is weapons of mass destruction and uh, proliferation thereof, and it really gets scary at that uh, point. Uh, let me start with a brief summary of uh, these two crises, beginning with the financial crisis. Uh, the 1990s were good times uh, for America. We had assimilated or would assimilate uh, crises such as the Latin American uh, and Asian financial crises and the dot-com uh, uh, bust. Uh, we, uh, the world was awash in money uh, and saw the United States as the safest place to put it. Uh, in the United States, the last two years of the 1990s, we actually ran for the first time since Lyndon Johnson's administration a surplus uh, in the state, uh, in the federal treasury. Uh, the United States, uh, many prominent economists declared that we had learned the lesson of the Depression uh, and that we were free from the threat that we might have another economic crisis. Alan Greenspan, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, said that markets are self-regulating and the role of government is to basically stay out of the way. Uh, but there were a few uh, nagging problems as we got uh, into the first decade of the 21st century. Uh, one of those uh, was an increasing gap uh, in income. Uh, we'd reached the point where the top 5% of Americans controlled about 66% of all the wealth in the country, and the bottom 80% of Americans controlled 13% of the wealth. We had not known such disparities in income since a rather ominous year, 1929. Uh, at the level of the middle class working American family, they had seen a decade of stagnation uh, in real income growth. Uh, there were some increasingly darker clouds. Uh, house, uh, price of housing was rapidly uh, increasing. Uh, it led to the belief that your home uh, was your ATM machine. Uh, in, the, in, 19, in 2005, there were more home mortgages granted to refinance an existing home, to take equity out of a house you already own, than mortgages for new homes. Uh, the mortgage uh, market uh, was the initial starting point of the contagion that has led to the current recession. 
uh, lending standards began to uh, collapse. Uh, a word that in the past would have been thought of as pejorative, liar's loan, uh, became the expectation uh, that uh, people weren't really expected to put down on their application uh, what their real capacity was because everybody knew that the house would be worth 10 or 15 or 20 percent more a year from now and therefore whatever their ability to pay uh, there was going to be sufficient uh, equity uh, to uh, cover it. Uh, there were new financial instruments being developed, uh, things like synthetic collateralized debt obligations, uh, which were expanding the customer base for mortgages uh, to a global uh, market. Uh, it's interesting that some of the first signs of our mortgage crisis showed up in German banks uh, who had purchased a lot of these very sophisticated uh, documents uh, and we're seeing uh, them uh, begin to go south. The regulators uh, noted the fact that there was an overheated housing market but chose not to do anything about it. And then tragedy struck. Uh, it was a three-tiered uh, tragedy, the starting uh, from mortgages, which in the summer of 2006, housing prices began to decline uh, and a larger and larger number of Americans fell into foreclosure. There are some regions in my state where one out of every seven homes is in some stage of uh, foreclosure. Uh, the foreclosures uh, uh, were also, or the documents that backed up those uh, weak mortgages on the balance sheets of some of our largest banks. And so what had started out as a housing mortgage financial crisis became a general financial crisis as some of the most significant institutions in America, many of which had engaged in lending practices which were at levels of 30 to 40 to 1 leverage, uh, they fell uh, into difficulty. Uh, and their response was largely self-protective. Uh, they hoarded money, including the money that the federal government would give them shortly thereafter as part of the TARP program, uh, and they used it to rebuild their own balance sheets uh, and in some cases to finance uh, mergers, think Wachovia and Wells Fargo, uh, and were not lending into the general economy, and that's thus causing the third tier, which was a general uh, economic collapse, the worst collapse that America had experienced since the 1930s. Well, does that make you feel uplifted and inspired? Now let's turn to the second tragedy, the oil spill. Uh, the United States uh, has been involved in offshore oil drilling uh, for most of the 20th century. In fact, the first drilling was done off Santa Barbara uh, here in California. But by the end of World War II, the focus of attention uh, had shifted uh, to the Gulf. Uh, the Gulf was found to be a, a, a series of rich deposits, relatively uh, easily accessible. Uh, the first uh, was drilled in 1938. Then there was a cessation during World War II, but it came back with abandon uh, after World War II when there were some, there have been some 44,000 uh, drilling sites uh, in shallow waters uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, shallow waters being defined uh, as 1,000 feet or less. 
Uh, those were relatively easy to do, safe. They'd been done multiple times. Uh, it, was, it was considered to be a, almost a no-risk business. And out of that and out of the culture of the wildcatter, uh, the uh, fellow who used to go out uh, with little money, a few tools, a l but a lot of optimism, and to find an oil field, that attitude transferred to the Gulf and created what is referred to as the culture of complacency as it relates to safety. Uh, those good times were reinforced by the fact that oil prices were steadily climbing. Uh, in 1991, a barrel of oil could be bought for less than $20. Today, as we know, it's over 100 uh, there was an increasing sophistication in the industry. The industry used to be very hierarchical. That is, the same company uh, controlled virtually every step of the process. During, as the industry began to move into deeper and deeper waters and more complex circumstances, it became more of an outsourced operation. Uh, as an example, Every oil company, or at least every major oil company, used to have its own capability uh, to test cement. And I'll mention in a few moments why that's so important. Today, only one company, Chevron, has retained that. All the other uh, big companies uh, have outsourced that largely to one company, uh, Halliburton. Uh, the, um, uh, today, we've become increasingly dependent on that offshore drilling about a third of our domestic oil today comes uh, from an offshore site primarily uh, in the Gulf of uh, Mexico, and that percentage is rapidly growing. So in the 1990s and the first decade of the 21st century, life was good in the oil patch. Then disaster struck. April 20, 2010, the largest man-made environmental disaster in the nation's history occurred at a drilling site 50 miles south of New Orleans uh, called the Macondo. Macondo was being drilled by BP. BP is one of the six largest oil companies in the world, uh, but it, has, it is the outlier. Uh, it has been known within the industry uh, as the firm uh, with the weakest safety uh, regimens. Uh, there was a site that was up for lease. It was one of the riskiest sites uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. It's called the Mississippi Trench. Uh, it was going to require drilling at up to 20,000 feet. Uh, it was enormous pressure, 17,000 pounds per square inch of pressure at the bottom of the Mississippi uh, Trench, a very unstable geology. Well, because we had a leasing policy that basically said the most important thing is how can we optimize royalties. And since BP bid the highest royalty on that site, we ended up with the company with the worst safety record about to start drilling in one of the most dangerous areas of the Gulf. The problem started early. Uh, in 2009, when they began uh, drilling, they immediately ran into a series of problems uh, causing uh, a delay by the fall of 2009 of over 45 days. Uh, because of that delay, uh, they were into the hurricane season, which they had hoped to avoid. And in fact, a hurricane hit 
their uh, drilling rig and damaged it so much uh, that it had to be sent back for major repairs. Uh, BP found another rig, uh, which was a new rig and many cases, uh, many instances, was the queen of the, uh, of the offshore oil rig fleet called Deepwater uh, Horizon. Uh, the only area of which I'm familiar that I would say is comparable in its technical sophistication uh, to that drilling rig would be the space program. And in many ways, they have great uh, similarities. Uh, the, um, the Deepwater Horizon had a problem, and that was uh, since it was not expected that BP was going to be using it for this Macondo well, the owner, uh, Transocean, a Swiss uh, multinational company, had already signed a commitment uh, for, the wet, for the Deepwater Horizon to go to another uh, site beginning in May of 2010. So they were under a lot of pressure to get this completed uh, before uh, that uh, new commitment would take place. In the hours before uh, 9 p.m. on April 20th, uh, there were a series of mistakes uh, made at Macondo, and almost every one of those mistakes uh, was related to the pressure of time to get this thing completed. Uh, as an example, I mentioned cement. Uh, I didn't, before I got involved in this, I didn't really appreciate the role that cement played uh, in drilling for oil. But it is one of the most important and one of the last actions taken. Uh, when, the, when the drill rig has reached its depth, which in the case of Macondo is a little over 18,000 feet, uh, they then pour a massive amount of cement down the pipe, which goes up around the outside of the pipe and seals the pipe from these enormous pressures. Uh, without that, uh, the pressures have the potential of crushing the pipe and allowing particularly the natural gas to get into the pipe. Uh, the cement contractor was Halliburton, the largest such contractor uh, in the world. Uh, Halliburton had test, there is a separate recipe for cement for each site based on its depth, the geological conditions, pressure. So they had a special recipe for Macondo. They tested in the laboratory twice. It failed twice. Before they could test it a third time, they poured it down the pipe on April the 20th, 2010. And the cement failed again, allowing gas to get into the pipe. The gas rose and led to an explosion which killed 11 people uh, and wounded several dozens uh, and caused uh, an economic calamity, uh, the um, full cost of which we will not know for some time, and an environmental disaster, which will probably be decades uh, before we have a full uh, accounting. Uh, after the explosion, we then got into the second phase, uh, the response. Each company is required to submit a response plan uh, of what they will do in the event of an accident and an indication that they have the capability of executing that plan. What we quickly found out was that the response plans were Xeroxed. In fact, the one for Macondo, 50 miles south of New Orleans, 
uh, talked about what they would do to respond to the uh, issues of walruses and sea lions, the likes of which have seldom been seen uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, and their representations as to containment capability proved to be totally uh, fictitious. Uh, there was a stumbling around for the first uh, 30 days. Part of that stumbling around was the inability to answer a basic question. How much is coming out of this pipe? BP originally said, we think it's about 1,000 uh, gallons a day. Uh, that was adjusted uh, to 6,000 gallons a day when they were attempting to put various containers on top of this pipe. Uh, finally, it was determined, and in fact, a former faculty member here was the key person in this, uh, Secretary Chu of the Department of Energy, that it was 62,000 gallons a day. And therefore, all of these early efforts were doomed to failure because they were so out of scale uh, with the severity of the problem. Uh, finally, with the good work of people like Dr. Chu and many scientists from our national laboratories, uh, it was possible uh, to put uh, a cap, uh, and some hundred days after the event, uh, the, it was finally brought under control. As I served on these two commissions, and we frequently were meeting almost simultaneously, uh, it became clear to me that there were some important similarities between oil and money. One of those is that both of these events the financial crisis and the oil spill were avoidable. These were not acts of nature. They were not the normal business cycle recurring. Uh, they were events that were man-made uh, failures. Uh, second, uh, that it was a case in which the offense had overrun the defense. In the case of oil, they'd been drilling for a long time in shallow waters, and there was an assumption that if we can develop the technology, we can move seamlessly uh, into these deeper waters. And there was a tremendous incentive to do that. Uh, the typical shallow water well produces about 500 barrels of oil a day. Some of these fields that are now being uh, found in deep water, uh, and this is not a partisan label, this is the industry label, that are referred to as elephants. Uh, and some of those elephants will produce 100,000 barrels of oil a day. Uh, that's why uh, the search for them is so intense. And that search uh, has developed the technology uh, on the offense, but not the equivalent technology to deal with safety or response to safety lapses. In much the same way on money. Uh, the... Uh, Financial industry uh, had developed extremely sophisticated uh, mathematical models uh, for their uh, uh, investment practices. Uh, I'm going to say something that may bring down the wrath of these students because they already uh, have been on my case earlier. Uh, I spent uh, a year uh, at the Kennedy School from 2005 to 2006 uh, and lived in the dormitory, so got to spend a lot of time uh, with uh, students. And what surprised me when I talked to students who were majoring uh, in mathematics, and I 
asked them what they were going to do, expecting that they were going to go into some high level of, uh, of industrial or technological applications. Almost without exception, that was not the case. They were going to go to work <coughs> for Goldman Sachs and apply their mathematical skills uh, to develop the next generation of sophisticated uh, instruments. Uh, at the same time, the regulatory systems were still based on the model of the 1930s and were very ponderous uh, and uh, demonstrably uh, inadequate. Uh, there were also warning signs. Uh, in the case of money, uh, the overheated uh, housing market, particularly in what are referred to as the SANDS, S-A-N-D-S, states, which are California, Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Those were the four states that were most affected by this uh, out-of-control housing uh, market. Uh, and in the case of the oil spill, uh, there had been an oil spill in Australia eight months before Macondo. It was called the Montero. And guess why the Montero off the northwest coast of Australia exploded? The cement. The same cause, and guess who the cement contractor was on the Montero? Halliburton. But, you know, when you ask the people at BP, were you aware that just eight months ago, on a well uh, similar to the one you're drilling in the Gulf, uh, that there was a cement failure which led to the, the greatest offshore uh, disaster in Australia's uh, oil production history, they were totally ignorant of that. So the warning signs uh, were either unknown or ignored. Uh, there was also an attitude that it can't happen here. Economists were saying we couldn't have another recession. The people in the oil industry said we've dug 44,000 of these wells without a problem. Uh, what are you talking about that we may uh, need to increase our safety standards? We're safe enough. Uh, there was also a disconnect between the party who was causing the problem and the party who was going to feel the consequences. In the case of money, typically the mortgages started with a mortgage broker. That mortgage broker was compensated based on a commission, based on how big the mortgage was and how many mortgages he or she could generate. As soon as uh, he generated one of these uh, uh, poor mortgages, they would then sell it uh, to a second party who would sell it to a third party, and finally it ends up on the books of a German bank. Uh, and that's where the consequences were. One of the basic principles of capitalism, that risk and reward are merged in the same person, so that uh, if you make a bad decision, you feel the consequences of it, were being avoided. Uh, and the same thing was true uh, in the oil industry, where uh, because of this change in the nature of the industry from hierarchical uh, to highly outsourced, uh, there was a, a division. Uh, going back to that Montera, the inquiry that was done into the Montera event in Australia, and I met in February with uh, the, the people who are the equivalent of our Department of Interior, uh, under Australian law, which puts all the responsibility on the permittee, which was a, an oil company from Thailand, uh, Halliburton, although it was the principal responsible party, had no consequences uh, as a result of that uh, event. 
And finally, there was too cozy a relationship, both in money and oil, between the industry and their supposed regulators. Uh, in the case of oil, I mean, it, I mean, it is a, it is an X-rated uh, story uh, of how close, uh, and I mean that in the literal sense, uh, the industry and the regulators uh, uh, became. Uh, and in the case of the uh, of of money. Uh, there was no comparable increase in the capabilities of the oversight regulators, whether they were the Federal Reserve Board, the SEC, the controller of the currency, or whoever was responsible, uh, and uh, the size and complexity of what they were supposed to be regulating. The question that we would ask is, will we learn the lessons of these two tragedies? Will we uh, take them uh, on board, so to speak, and use these as the impetus for reform? You may have heard the president's speech uh, last week talking about energy policy, uh, where uh, some people had questioned, why do we need to consider a new energy policy in America? And the president said, has everybody acquired amnesia? Does nobody remember uh, April the 20th, less than a year ago? Uh, have you forgotten the lessons that we should have learned from that incident? Unfortunately, for many people, the answer was we did forget. Uh, there are some good examples uh, of industries that did learn the lesson. Uh, after Bhopal in India, the chemical industry and its regulators, the Chemical Safety Board, uh, became much more uh, safety-oriented. Uh, in the case of the nuclear power industry, after Three Mile Island, the industry set up a group called INPO, which is a self-policing uh, safety uh, institute, uh, which is independent from, but has the same basic objective as the governmental regulator, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, to elevate the standards of safety in America's nuclear plants. Will our financial institutions, will our oil companies uh, be like chemical and nuclear, that they'll learn from these lessons? Well, I'll have to say uh, that the record thus far is not very impressive. Uh, in the case of the oil industry, uh, the you may have seen just within the last three days, Transocean, one of the three culpable parties uh, in Macondo issued a, a proxy statement to its shareholders saying 2010 is the best safety year this company has ever had and therefore we will give bonuses to our executives uh, based on uh, our safety performance. Here's a company that was culpable uh, in killing 11 people, wounding many more, and causing enormous uh, economic and environmental uh, damage. I would have to say that the best you could say is that they had a tin ear towards what was really happening. Uh, in the case of the uh, industry, uh, we'd urge that they establish, as the nuclear industry had, an internal capability uh, to achieve a high standard of safety. There is no reason why the United States should not be the world leader uh, in safety of its offshore oil enterprise. 
Bob B., uh, who is a professor in the engineering school here and probably one of the most renowned academics in this area, uses the phrase, we are watching other countries' rear lights in terms of safety, uh, with particularly the Norwegians, the British, and the Australians uh, being significantly ahead of us. Let me just, this is, it's test uh, time now. Uh, one of the things we found out was there's very little comparability in accident reporting uh, in the global oil industry. So you, you read the number of accidents, for instance, that have occurred in the North Sea, and you read the number that have occurred in the Gulf, and you would say, boy, the Gulf must really be uh, doing the job on safety because they have so many fewer accidents. Well, what we found out is it wasn't that we were having fewer accidents. We were having fewer reported uh, accidents. Now, the one area where you can't fudge very much uh, is in fatalities. I mean, there is a dead body somewhere. You can count those. What do you think the relationship? Some of, some of you may have been uh, on the coast of Scotland or Norway and experienced the North Sea. It's a pretty uh, bitter environment. The Gulf of Mexico, except for hurricanes, is a fairly benign environment. What do you think the ratio of fatalities per 100 million hours worked is between the North Sea and the Gulf of Mexico? Well, the answer is it's five to one, not on our side. Five persons killed in the Gulf for every one person killed in the North Sea. That is an an outrageous and totally unacceptable uh, statistic. And yet the industry has refused to date to set up a uh, comparable uh, operation to that which nuclear power has done. And in terms of uh, Congress, uh, Congress is driven by the phrase, drill, baby, drill. And the most significant legislation that has a chance of of uh, passage has been introduced will actually contribute to less safety uh, by reducing the time that the regulators have to review permits uh, and determine if, for instance, the response plan is reasonable and if the company has the capability to carry out the response plan. So I would say that it's been a rather disappointing effort thus far as it relates to oil and it's not much better as it relates uh, to money. There was the Dodd-Frank bill, which passed the Congress about 18 months ago, uh, which was a, an important piece of legislation, uh, generally ascribed to be the most significant financial reform since the 1930s. But already it's being picked apart, uh, particularly in the House of Representatives, uh, uh, by threats to cut the funding uh, of the uh, institutions such as the Federal Reserve, which are supposed to be carrying out these new uh, standards. So what, have we learned the lesson? Uh, not very evident thus far. Uh, what, um, what are some of the policy implications of this? Uh, I would say there are primarily three. One uh, is an obvious one. And that is that we have not repealed human nature. The uh, Greeks uh, had it right. Uh, their philosophers identified that human beings 
have certain inherent weaknesses, greed, avarice, arrogance are just a few of those negative qualities. And the Greeks said that one of the reasons that we have government uh, is to constrain those negative factors. Well, friends, what was true in Athens uh, 23 or 400 years ago uh, is true in Houston and on Wall Street today. Uh, those same characteristics are present, but we have not had the, an effective governmental capability uh, to rein them in. Uh, second is the need for anticipatory and nimble forms of that regulation, uh, not the let's let the disaster occur first and then try to figure out what we're going to do about it. Uh, the, um, uh, today we tend to have a regulatory system which is based on a problem has happened and we're going to not let that problem occur again. And I'm now going to give you another test. You didn't do very well on the North Sea and the Gulf, but this is redemption time. Uh, I was elected to the United States Senate in 1986, uh, sworn in in January of 87. A few days after uh, I was sworn in, a representative from the Secretary of the Senate's office comes to tell me about all the stuff that I'm going to be uh, provided. Uh, I might say this is 1987. Uh, this, I will not give you this question, but I'll just give you the answer. Uh, a senator in the fourth largest state and the senator in the largest state, California, got exactly the same number of computers for their staff uh, to deal with all of the constituent and other issues they have. And you know what that number was? Three. Uh, that's how much in the vanguard of modern technology the United States Senate was. But we were in the vanguard in terms of controlling one serious, serious vice that had been uncovered. Uh, the man from the Secretary of the Senate's office told me that I was going to have to sign a piece of paper assuming personal responsibility for one item and one item only in my office and if it wasn't there when I left or if it was damaged, uh, I would have to repay uh, the federal government uh, for the cost. What do you think that one item was? Desk? Chair? No. Fax machine? No. No. Water cooler? No. <laughs> that would have been a good one. Uh, well, you, you have the, the key to the men's room or ladies' room? No. Well, you, you failed again. I'm very disappointed. The answer is the dictionary. And it was a very nice, you know, big Oxford dictionary. I'm certain that in 1843, some senator who had probably lost his reelection uh, decided to put the dictionary in his bag and go home with it. And then they decided, by God, we're never going to let this happen again, so we're going to require each member of the Senate to take personal responsibility for the dictionary. I'll say, boy, when that dictionary was returned after my 18 years, it was in very good uh, shape. But that is typical of regulation. It sees a problem, and the solution is to that specific problem. It happened again in 1990. We had the largest oil spill prior to Macondo called Exxon Valdez, uh, a, a vessel containing 
uh, oil went aground in an interior water body in Alaska. Uh, in 1990, the Congress passed the Oil Spill Prevention Act, which was based specifically on a tanker going aground in an inland water body. That was the law of America. It is the law of America today. Therefore, was the controlling law uh, when Macondo occurred. People suddenly realized that the industry had changed dramatically, and it wasn't potentially leaking ships that were our big problem. It was potentially leaking uh, wells uh, 18,000 feet below the surface that were our problem. Uh, so a second lesson is we need to reform our regulatory system to be more nimble and anticipatory uh, towards uh, uh, rapidly changing events. Some of the things that have been suggested, and let me say I'm dwelling on this because this is a public policy school and therefore you're obligated to talk about public policy, right? Uh, one approach is uh, what's referred to as sunsets, where you pass a law like that 1990 law and say it'll go out of existence in 1995 unless it's reenacted. The theory of that is it forces people to consider uh, what changes have occurred uh, and uh, what's appropriate for the future. The problem today is I'm worried that what would happen if it came up five years later would be instead of using five years of new information to make the law better, there would be an effort, as is happening today, uh, to make the law weaker in response to the urging of the affected industry. Uh, another approach is a mandatory review. I was chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. We had a legal requirement every year to hold uh, a hearing uh, with the heads of the intelligence agencies, both in closed session and in public session, on what were the threats that America was facing uh, in the, this uh, next upcoming year, and what did that mean for our intelligence community. Uh, that may have some uh, useful application. Uh, another, there used to be in Congress uh, a Congressional Office of Science and Technology, uh, and it was to be the place that Congress would turn if it had a difficult science-based problem. Uh, unfortunately, uh, when a uh, soon-to-be presidential candidate uh, was, uh, became Speaker of the House of Representatives uh, in 1994, I'm not going to name who that person was, uh, they abolished the uh, Congressional Office of Science and Technology. So now, if you were a member of, of Congress and you wanted to ask the question, what should we be doing to more appropriately regulate our offshore oil industry or our uh, financial industry, uh, to the extent that it involved a science or technical answer, you wouldn't have a place to get it. So those are some of the uh, public uh, policy uh, issues and potential responses. Uh, I mentioned that I was going to withhold the issue of weapons of mass destruction uh, until later. Well, later uh, is now. Uh, the one thing that most distinguishes the WMD problem from oil and money is it hasn't happened. We've had a financial crisis. We've had an environmental disaster. 
with great human toll. What we haven't had uh, is a terrorist using uh, a weapon of mass destruction. The Weapons of Mass Destruction Commission that I chaired in 2008 and 2009, which contained uh, some of the most eminent people in the country on that subject, uh, came to three judgments. Uh, one was that uh, we were becoming less safe against a terrorist use of a WMD. And that was based on a number of factors, including that access, particularly on the biological side, was so much easier today than it had been in the past, and that the terrorist organizations, particularly Hezbollah and al-Qaeda, had gained more capabilities uh, to use them. Uh, second, uh, we found that it was better than a 50-50 prospect that there will be a weapon of mass destruction used by a terrorist someplace on Earth before the end of the year 2013. And third, that it was more likely that that would be a biological rather than a nuclear device. Uh, the question is, will we wait until we have yet another disaster before we take the steps that are available to us now to reduce that uh, percentage, at least to make the United States uh, the part of the world that is the least vulnerable uh, to a weapon of mass destruction attack. So the question now before us, friends, is uh, we have had the tragedy of money, we've had the tragedy of oil, are we going to have to relive those tragedies with a tragedy of a weapon of mass destruction? I hope that we'll be wise enough to avoid that. Thank you. Please come over and sit down. We're going to open up some water here for you. That was wonderful. Uh, we have some great questions here from the audience. Uh, I may be able to get a few more in, although I've got a lot up here. Uh, let me start with one which I think is on everybody's mind. Uh, and this, this questioner asks, have you seen the Academy Award-winning film Inside Job? Is it, to your knowledge, accurate? But, but, the, but the question goes on. If so, will we ever see prosecutions of the wrongdoers? How about the wrongdoers in the Gulf oil spill? And another person asks a related question. Why are, and very directly, why are people from the financial industry and people from BP and Halliburton not in jail? So let's do the not in jail first and then maybe ask whether Inside Job got it right. I have not seen the movie Inside Job, but I'm familiar with what it's... Uh, thesis is, uh, I think it's an outrage. Uh, during the SNL crisis of the late 80s and early 90s, uh, there were scores of people who went to jail. The most prominent savings and loan executive in Miami uh, spent seven or eight years in jail because of his actions. Uh, as of today, the only person uh, that are being uh, sent to jail are the victims. You may have seen the New York Times article recently about the young man from West Virginia. Yes, uh, he signed a liar's loan, but the person who took the liar's loan uh, was a sophisticated uh, mortgage broker uh, who has gone uh, scot-free. Uh, I don't think we're sending a very effective signal of deterrence uh, that this kind of behavior uh, is uh, unacceptable. As to the oil spill, the Department of Justice has opened a criminal investigation, uh, and 
it uh, potentially could lead to some indictments, but the jury has not yet been sworn in, much less uh, rendered a verdict uh, on that. Inside Job makes the, the point uh, that some of the advisors to President Obama are the same people who were around during the genesis of the financial crisis. Uh, Tim Geithner, uh, Larry Summers. Summers is now left, but he was certainly there for the beginning of the administration. Is that a problem? Is that something we should be worried about, that there's just too cozy a relationship here? Yeah. I think most of the things that have gotten President Obama in trouble, and let me say I am... Uh, am a strong supporter and am privileged to have been able to serve uh, in the positions that he uh, has uh, uh, offered to me. Uh, but I think most of his problems today are the result of the first 60 days uh, beginning with the transition and then into the uh, early weeks of his presidency. One of those was he had run for office, uh, as all politicians do, making certain commitments uh, based on the state of the world at the time the campaign's being conducted. One of his principal commitments was health care reform. And I think we'd all agree that that is an issue that uh, demands attention. The problem was the world shifted uh, between October of 2008 and the time President Obama took the office. Uh, and the, the issue for Americans uh, in January of uh, 2009 was not health care. Uh, it was the state of the economy. And I think the president would have been well served if he would have given a speech basically saying, uh, I am serious and faithful to the commitments that I made as a candidate and over my term in office will strive uh, to achieve those important goals. But right now we have a, a, a fire uh, in our nation's house that's got to be attended to, and it is to that fire that I'm going to direct all of my attention. And uh, to, to be the, the fire personnel, I'm going to bring in some new people with some new thoughts and ideas of how to deal with this contagion uh, and not be seen as importing the people who, in many instances, made key decisions that contributed uh, to the very problem. Uh, I, uh, I think the, the president is a good, uh, is a good man. He's, uh, uh, he, as uh, frequently happens, uh, stumbled right out of the gate uh, and is still striving to uh, recover his balance. Uh, I hope he does so between now and November uh, 2012 because the options are pretty scary. This is sort of a related question. There, there's a book, as you know, about the Enron scandal called The Smartest uh, People in the Room. And the questionnaire asks, oh, how can we get the smartest people in the room working on defense rather than offense? And I think it gets back to this question of advisors. I mean, one of the reasons you could excuse Obama is you could say, well, he had to have people who really understood the situation, and Larry Summers understood the situation, and Geithner understood the situation. So he was just getting some people who understood it, but the problem is they were implicated in the creation of the problem. And so how do you overcome that problem? And especially for a public policy school like ours, uh, how do we make sure that folks from public policy schools who really do want to work on defense, at least part of the time, that they get a chance to, to really do that? I will about 
uh, to irritate what little support I have in this audience by saying that there's an old saying in the military that the generals are always fighting the last wars. I think there's some uh, similarity uh, to academics. Uh, I believe one of the problems we had is we had too many uh, academics and economists in positions of major policy who had spent too much time understanding the Great Depression. Uh, and I would put Mr. Bernanke as the, the chairman of the Fed at the top of that list. Uh, it's, it's a good thing for people uh, to study and understand the past. It's not a good thing to assume that the present is a replication of the past. The fact is the world uh, in the second decade of the 21st century is a lot different place than it was in the 1930s, and therefore fresh thinking and fresh analysis and uh, prescriptions uh, are called for. Uh, as to how we can better balance the defense with the offense, I think it starts within the industry. Uh, it has to have a commitment uh, to safe and appropriate uh, actions, high standard of ethics. Uh, it then moves to the regulatory uh, community uh, which has to have people of equal uh, technical knowledge and competence and self-confidence to those that are being regulated uh, in order to assure that proper defensive measures uh, are being taken. And I think the, uh, the intellectual community has a major role here because you're going to be providing the, the ideas uh, and fresh content uh, that should shape uh, the new policy directions to deal with the new conditions in which those policies are going to be applied. So my final question goes in a different direction, and it's really trying to get at what can we do to get young people energized. And this person asks, should we have a National Youth Energy Efficiency Corps uh, as an alternative to military service, or just even as a way that young people can get involved in trying to deal with the questions of energy efficiency? That might be an idea, but I think the problem is much more fundamental than that. Uh, I graduated from high school in 1955. When I graduated, I had taken three one-year courses in civics from the 7th to the 12th grade. And I was not an outlier. That was the national standard. My oldest granddaughter graduated from a public high school uh, in Tallahassee, Florida in 2009. She had also taken the national standard of civics. Uh, that was one semester. Uh, we have, for two generations, we have given our young people the equivalent of 450 days less uh, structured instruction about what it means to be a citizen uh, in our democracy. They didn't take a course like Problems in Democracy, where you learned concepts such as reasoned compromise. They didn't take a course, as I did in the 12th grade, on the role of the citizen in democracy, where we learned the skills of being an effective, participating citizen. Uh, while I would not put all of the blame for the current state of our democracy on that, I would put the principal share on the fact that we have given up educating uh, our young people uh, and now are not so young people are uh, carrying that deficit with them. 
and therefore we have a population that doesn't uh, uh, understand uh, how democracy works, a, a population which increasingly uh, is unwilling uh, to be personally involved, and I commend those of you who are here tonight because your very presence indicates uh, your desire uh, to be actively uh, involved. Uh, and maybe the, uh, the metaphor for this I saw in the Dulles uh, airport where there is a kiosk from which you can buy political memorabilia. In that kiosk I saw a t-shirt and the t-shirt had across the top I love America. In the middle it had I hate its government. Well, when I listen, when I say the Pledge of Allegiance, I think it says that the flag uh, is, uh, stands for uh, the republic. Uh, so how can you love America, the flag and all of its symbols, and hate the very thing for which those symbols uh, re represent? So I think we've got uh, a major challenge. Uh, one of the things that I'm spending a lot of my time on is a center uh, at the University of Florida uh, devoted to citizenship. Uh, citizenship uh, at the university itself uh, and influencing uh, citizenship uh, throughout uh, the state beginning with that next generation that I hope will not go through uh, the same shredding of exposure to citizenship uh, that has happened to now 40 years uh, of young Americans. And I would have to say that's why the Goldman School of Public Policy uh, is so proud of what it does, because we're trying to make government better so that we can make America better and so that we can have a, a country uh, that really performs well and solves problems, especially some of these really tough problems that you've talked to us uh, about tonight, uh, problems of oil and money. And I want to thank Senator Bob Graham for being with us here tonight. And say that he's a public servant who epitomizes uh, what we need more of in Washington and in the world to help really focus on, understand, and solve problems. So thank you so very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.